Well, thanks, Dave. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Super excited uh, to have you with us this morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Let me just catch you up where we are in this series here in Romans. Chapter 1 in Romans is the condemnation of the Gentile. What the Apostle Paul is going to say is, for even the nations that don't have the Bible, even for people that didn't have the Old Testament, they still fall under the just condemnation of God because they do by nature what they know to be wrong. Okay, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the condemnation of the Jew, where the Apostle Paul says that even if you have a Bible, even if you have the Old Testament, it doesn't do you much good because you can't keep it, and therefore you fall under the just condemnation of God. Chapter 3 at the beginning is going to be the condemnation of all people, all right? So the book of Romans starts out very cheery. It starts out very happy, as you can tell. And so uh, it's only halfway through chapter 3 that we actually start to get some good news. So last week, Jeff said that uh, the first part of Romans is like an anaconda or a boa constrictor, that it wraps around you and it just pulls tighter and squeezes tighter and tighter until you're gasping for air. Well, hang on. Because in chapter 3, the gospel is going to come in like Crocodile Dundee and cut that snake off of you, okay? But we have to get through the bad news before we get to the good news. We have to get a person lost before we can get a person saved. And that's what we're going to be doing as we continue working through chapter 2. Let me pray for us, and then we will begin. Father, I thank you that you are kind and loving and gracious. I confess that I feel far from you and have felt far from you this week. But I also confess that my feelings are liars and that what your word said is true and not our emotional state, not what we think, not what the culture around us says, but just your word. And so we thank you uh, for your scriptures. We thank you that you've told us in black and white specifically who you are, what Christ has done. We ask that you would uh, encourage us, that you would send the Spirit to transform our hearts as we study the scriptures. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, before we get into this text, I want to mention something. I uh, am fascinated by sociology, all right? I'm fascinated by social situations. I love watching people, okay? Not like in a creepy way, not like through binoculars. I just mean I love like watching people at the mall, or I love watching people interact at church, or I love when two people are walking down the hall on the same side, and they run into somebody that's also on the same side, and they kind of do this little shuffle, and then they giggle, and they walk past each other. You know what I'm talking about? I love that. I think that is fascinating. It is an interesting study in sociology. And so I've put together a list of a few socially awkward situations that I found myself in that perhaps you can relate to, okay? Here's the first one. When somebody stands too close to you when they're talking, do you know what I mean? If right now you're saying, that never happens to me, you're one of those people, okay? So what happens is someone comes up and they get way too close to me. Okay, if it's my wife, that's one thing. If it's anybody else and I can feel the moisture of your hot breath, it's too close. And so they'll come up and they'll be talking and they're like, hey, Zach, how you doing? I'm like, man, I'm good. How are you doing? And I'll do this little step back. But they don't catch on. So then they take a little step, right? And then I have to take another little step. If you're talking to somebody and they keep backing up, stop it. Stop stepping towards them. You're in their bubble. You need to get out of their bubble, okay? That's one socially awkward situation you might find yourself in. Here's another one. If you've ever gone for a walk, with more than just one person, okay? Because the sidewalks are made to where only two people can stand side by side. So if I'm going for a walk with two buddies or my wife and one of her friends or something like this, they end up walking together, and I'm awkwardly like walking behind them on the sidewalk. What are you guys talking about, right? Or I have to walk around in the lumpy grass, bump into a mailbox. That's what happens because sidewalks are not made for more than two people to walk side by side, okay? Here's the third one. When somebody tries to do an accent 
and it doesn't sound anything like that accent. That is a socially awkward situation, okay? So I'll be watching it. By the way, I'm terrible at accents. You would think that I'd be good at accents because I'm really extroverted in these kind of things, but I'm terrible at it. So Katie and I will be watching like uh, some type of British movie, and I'll just try to burst into a British-sounding accent, and it comes off as like someone from India trying to impersonate Forrest Gump, okay? It's, it's anything but English. It's anything but refined, okay? Sometimes that happens. Here's another one. I think it's kind of a weird social experiment anytime you ride on an elevator, okay? There's all these weird unwritten rules about elevators. So the door's open, and there's like 100 people staring at you, and you walk in the elevator, but you have to turn around. I've always wondered what it would be like just to walk in and just stare straight ahead. Everybody's looking at you. It's like your first time on an elevator. But social rules that are unwritten somehow dictate that you have to turn around, okay? So you turn around, everybody's facing the door, and if you need somebody to push a button for you for your floor, you're like overly polite, right? It's like, hey, uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is too much trouble. Would you mind pushing button number seven? Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, thank you. You're so kind, right? <laughs> my favorite part about being on an elevator is when I get into the elevator and I'm the only one and I see someone else coming, so I start hitting the closed door button. And they're like, hold the elevator. And I act like I can't. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Science, it's closing. That's it. And deep down, I'm like, yes, got them. They can take the stairs, right? Here's another one. When you open a birthday card and act like you don't see the money inside. You know what I'm talking about? As soon as I get a birthday card on my birthday, the first thing I'm thinking is, I don't care what this card says. I hope there's money in it, okay? So I open the card, and as soon as I start to crack it open and I see that money or that gift card, my heart starts rejoicing. I'm like, I'm going to buy so many things. It's going to be so much fun, but I can't let them see that because that's just not allowed socially. And so I, I kind of hold the money there, and I act like I don't see it, and I'm just reading the card. Mm. This is, these are deep words. These are great. You didn't even need to get me a gift. The card was enough, right? And I do that. And then as soon as I get home, card goes in the trash. Money, right? <laughs> Don't judge me. I know you do the same thing. I know you do the same thing. And then lastly, and the reason I wanted to mention these uh, is because this last one has relevance for this text today, is when somebody awkwardly answers a rhetorical question, okay? Do you know what rhetorical questions are? You hear the word rhetoric in there. Rhetorical questions are not meant for you to blurt out an answer like you have no social awareness. Rhetorical questions are meant to make you think. They're meant to just hit you. They're meant to make you think through things. They're meant to change your actions. But for some reason, this is something that I do that's socially awkward, a lot of times I just answer them. So I'll be headed out the door and my wife is like, hey, do you want a coat? You don't want to catch a cold, do you? And I'll be like, no, colds are bad, right? She wasn't looking for an answer. She was saying, go get a coat. And I've done that my whole life. Even when I was a little kid in school, the teacher would be like, y'all need to study for this test. You don't want to fail, do you? And I'd be like, no, no, failing is bad. She was not asking for a blurted out answer. She was making a point with her rhetorical question. Well, here's why I tell you that. This text today, verses 17 through 24, is going to ask several rhetorical questions. The Apostle Paul is going to confront Jewish identity, and then he's going to move into several rhetorical questions, and he's not expecting the Jews to just yell out the answer. He's expecting for those questions to hit them, to convict them, to make them think through different sins, different struggles, uh, different things that they are going through. So that's what's going to be going on in, uh, in this text, okay? Now, before we get into verse 17, I need to say one more thing. This text is going to use the word law, L-A-W, a lot, as Romans 2 has used the word law a lot. For this entire sermon, when I say the word law, I don't mean civil law, like breaking the speed limit, or I fought the law and the law won. I don't mean civil law. 
And I also don't mean general rules or general principles, right? So like the law of thermodynamics or the law of non-contradiction or Murphy's law. I don't mean either of those. When I use the word law, I exclusively mean Old Testament rules given to Israel, okay? That's what I mean by law. You'll hear us use the word mosaic law. That doesn't mean a mosaic like a bunch of little pieces that are broken together that make a picture. It means related to Moses, all right? It's the law given to Moses. That's what we mean by mosaic law, and in this sermon, that's what I mean when I say law. We're meaning Old Testament rules given to Israel that have been completed now in Christ. That's what I'm talking about when I say law. You ready to get in the text? All right. Verse 17a. Let's start with this first part here. But if you call yourself a Jew... This first part of this is going to be talking about Jewish identity, okay? It's talking about Jewish identity. Let's explain what what this thing is. Paul's constantly talking about Jews. Here we'll talk about first century Jews. We'll talk about Judaism. What is the deal with Judaism? What is the deal with Jews and Romans? What is going on? Let me just give you a quick history here, okay? In the Old Testament, when mankind rebels against God, God comes to a man named Abram, later names him Abraham, and he basically says that through your descendants— through your children, I'm going to send somebody who's going to be a Messiah, and he is going to put the world back to rights. That through your lineage, through your kids, I'm going to send somebody who's going to be a blessing to all nations, okay? So the Jews are the descendants of Abraham. That's what it means to be Jewish. In the Bible, people are typically divided into two racial categories, Jews and Gentiles. A Jew is a descendant of Abraham. The Gentiles are everybody else, okay? The Gentiles are everybody else. Now, what Israel was meant to be was kind of God's rescue team for the whole world. They were kind of meant to be God's rescue team for the whole world, okay? This is an analogy we've used a lot here at Parkway, and it's this. Imagine that all mankind is out in the sea, and we're drowning, okay? We're trying to keep our head above water. We are drowning. So what God does is he says, Israel, you're my coast guard. You be a light to the nations. You keep my law. You don't fall into idolatry. You show people what it's supposed to look like to live under my kingdom. But then the coast guard goes out, and it gets lost at sea. That's the story of the Old Testament, that Israel is supposed to be this elect nation to show people what it should look like to live under God's reign, but they end up committing the same sins as everybody else. And so in the New Testament, God has to look down across the sea of damnable humanity and say, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, and you get Jesus, okay? All right, the second, second member of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, takes on flesh and dies for our sins. But that's what's going on with Israel. So Christianity is really just completed Judaism. It's Judaism part two. It's Judaism the last Jedi. If we're not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what the heck are we doing? Okay? That's what Christianity is. What is a Jew? A Jew today is somebody who just believes the Old Testament but doesn't believe the New. Okay? They're still waiting on a Messiah. The Old Testament promises that there'll be a Messiah, that there'll be salvation, that the Gentiles will flock to Zion. We as Christians say that's fulfilled in Christ. That's what makes us Christians. Little Christ is what the term means. Okay? So a Jew is someone who just believes these promises in the Old Testament, but they do not believe Jesus is the answer. A Christian is one who sees those promises and says, no, Jesus is the answer at every point. He's a descendant of David. He's uh, from Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem. He fulfills all these promises that the Old Testament gives us of what the Messiah is meant to be. Now, this term here, though, Jew, is not primarily what those who are Jewish were called for most of their history. Okay? Let me do a little world history for you. In 722 B.C., Israel was exiled to Assyria, okay? In 587-586 B.C., Judah was exiled into Babylon. When they ended up coming back from the exile, a large amount of those people that returned were of the tribe of Judah. So Judah, Judea, and Jew, those terms are all related. That's where you get the term Jew. It primarily comes after the exile. 
Before that, the Jewish people are called other things. Typically, they're called like the Hebrews, uh, or they're called the Israelites, or things like this. Okay? They're called things like that. But that's what Paul says here first. If you call yourself a, do- a Jew, he's pointing to Jewish identity. Verses 17b through 18. But if you call yourself a Jew, and now he's going to mention what it looks like to be a Jew. And rely on the law. He mentioned four things. Rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So here, the Apostle Paul is going to be talking about how Jews saw themselves in relation to God because they had the Mosaic law. They had these Old Testament rules that God had given them at Sinai. And it mentions these four things. They rely on the law. They boast in God, which includes boasting in His Word. They know His will, and they approve what is excellent, meaning they know what is best. Okay, let me give you a little summary. In the first century, if you were Jewish, your life revolved around two pillars, two main big pillars of Judaism, okay? The first is temple, and the second is Torah, Torah, okay? Temple and Torah. Everything that you did as a Jew revolved around those two things, okay? The temple is where you go to worship God. Though God is everywhere, He's he's omnipresent. Uh, His presence is especially felt in the temple, especially felt in Jerusalem, so you had the temple. And you also had the Scriptures, the Torah, the law, okay? The Sadducees, which were a group of Jews, they were the ones primarily concerned with the temple. They were the ones running the temple. And it was a different group of Jews, the Pharisees, that were primarily involved in teaching the law. That's where you got a bunch of synagogues, a bunch of teachers, and these kind of things, okay? When the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, the Judaism that then formed out of that, up through rabbinic Judaism, even into modern Judaism, comes from this Pharisaical strand of Judaism, which focuses on the law. So I say all of that to say, what does it mean to be a Jew in the first century? You worship at the temple, you study Torah. When the temple is destroyed, the Torah now, the Scriptures, now become one of your primary identities of what it means to be Jewish. Okay, I want to give you an example. I'm going to read to you a passage from 2 Baruch 48, 22 through 24. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, man, it's been a long time since I've had a morning devotional out of 2 Baruch, that's probably good because it's not in the Bible, okay? It should not be in the Bible. It is a work of Jewish literature, but I want to read it to you because it, lets, it shows you how Jews viewed themselves in relation to the law. So I think we're going to throw it up on the screen as well. There it is. In you do we trust, for lo, your law is with us. And we know that we shall not fall so long as we keep your statutes. To all time we are blessed, and at all events in this, that we have not mingled with the Gentiles. Notice that the law was a way that Jews weren't a rescue team for the world, but they rather used the law to distance themselves from Gentiles, okay? For we are all one, I'm sorry, for we are all one celebrated people who have received one law from one, that's God, and the law which is amongst us will aid us, and the surpassing wisdom which is in us will help us. The idea of this passage is this, that simply by having the law, I am somehow in a better relationship with God, and I am somehow protected from His judgment even if I break it. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say is that that's not true. Simply having the law that you disobey does not protect you from the wrath of God. Let me give you an example. Are there certain benefits that you get from the Constitution by being an American? Yes, okay? Or at least there used to be. Let's just go back 15 years ago or something. You used to have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, etc. Those things are slowly being eroded. But the idea is as an American citizen, just by having the Constitution, there are certain benefits. There are certain blessings that that gives you, okay? But are those blessings completely unconditional? If you become a spy for China, if you become a spy for Russia, if you become a spy for North Korea or something like this, 
all of a sudden, are you protected by all those rights? If you're convicted of treason, do you get to keep your rights to uh, keep and bear arms in prison? In case you haven't been there, you don't. Just want to throw that out there, okay? Uh, You can have your life taken for treason, and in that sense, you lose all your rights. So you see, there are certain blessings of having the Constitution, but if you completely reject it and you completely turn your back on it and you commit treason, you lose those benefits. What the Apostle Paul will say is that there are benefits for the Jews in having the law. He'll say this later on in the text. There are benefits of having the law. But when you reject it, when you reject the Messiah, which is to reject God, you've turned your back on that and you no longer get the blessings that that covenant has entailed for you, okay? Now, as these Jews are boasting in the law, let me ask you this question. What was the point and what was the purpose of the Mosaic law? Why did God give this list of what, 613, I think is what Jeff said it was, rules to Israel? Why did God give those rules to Israel? What was the point of the giving of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament? There's four of them. Let me give you these four. Number one, God gave the law to show Israel what it looked like to be a holy people. When you're reading in the Old Testament, you're going to come across all these weird laws about this is how you do purity, and this is how you have to wash yourself, and this is how you do this, and this is how close you can come in the temple, and when you do this, you become unclean, and you you start thinking to yourself, man, it seems like all Israel is doing all the time is being concerned with what it looks like to be holy. Yes, that's the point. When you see how meticulous these Old Testament laws are, it's meant to make you say, how holy must God be if this is what perfection looks like? So the first thing and the first reason that we're given the law is to show us the utter holiness of God, okay? The second one was to separate Israel from the other nations. It was to separate Israel from the other nations. So when you're reading through the Old Testament law, there's all these commands that would have made Israel look a little bit funny. It would have made them look a little bit different. It would have made them look a little bit awkward, and that's intentional. They're not allowed to wear two types of mixed clothes. They're not allowed to shave their unibrow. How about that, ladies? They're not allowed to have tattoos. They're not allowed to trim the edges of their beard. They're not allowed to do these different things. Uh, They do circumcision, etc. These different rules were meant to make them look different from the other nations because they were different from the other nations. God had made a covenant with Abraham that he had not made with the other nations, and so Israel was supposed to look different from the other nations. They weren't allowed to eat pork. If I was a Jew in the Old Testament and I couldn't eat bacon, I would just have to go to hell, all right? I cannot resist the allure of bacon, but they couldn't eat that, all right, because they were supposed to look different than the other nations. Number three, the reason the law was given is so that people knew what pleased and displeased God. So people knew what pleased and displeased God, okay? We as Christians in Judaism before this, we have something special in that God has given us His Word. You have to realize that's not the case with other religions. In the Old Testament, there are these people, the Canaanites, who are literally sacrificing their children to their gods so that it will rain. They don't know what their gods want. It's not raining. We're all going to die. What do our gods want? Maybe they want us to kill our kids. It's not like Greek mythology where somehow you've offended Zeus and you don't know why you've offended him. Maybe you'll offer a sacrifice. Maybe he'll be mad at you. He's really capricious and he's really just random. They're kind of just like big exalted humans. That's not how God is. But God has given us His Word specifically in black and white so that we can read who He is, what He has done in Christ, what He commands, etc. So one of the purposes, the third purpose of the law was to know who God is, to know what pleased God and displeased God. Now here's the last one, okay? Now this is the big one. Everybody, if you don't get any of those other ones, listen to this one. Part of the purpose of the Old Testament law was to show you that you could not keep it and that you needed a Savior. Let me say it stronger. God gave His law to make you fail, 
to make you see how sinful you are, how sinful I are, I are, how sinful I are. My words are not inerrant, okay? How sinful I am, so that we might know that we need a Savior. We might know that we need forgiveness. That's the purpose, okay? Romans 5.20, now the law came in to what the trespass? Increase the trespass. Not to decrease it, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God gave the Old Testament law to sinful humans so that we could see how sinful we are, so that we couldn't keep it, so that we would fail. The law was not given to Israel to climb and pull themselves up to heaven on some type of moral ladder. It was not meant for them to pull themselves up by their own moral bootstraps. It was to show them, you can't be as holy as God has asked you to be, so you need forgiveness. That was the purpose of the law. The law shows us how sinful we really are. We read that thou shalt not covet, and all of a sudden we think, man, I want a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't belong to me. That's always how that happens. The law was meant to show us our utterly helpless state so that we would cry out for a Messiah, so that we would cry out for a Messiah, okay? Let me give you a few examples. So my son Judah, he's two and a half, and uh, if I were to take all his toys and put them in front of him, but I were to take one toy and move it to the side, and I were to say, son, you can play with all these toys right here, but don't play with this one toy. What is the toy he most wants to play with? The one, even if it's not the best toy. He wants to play with it just because I said not to, right? Because that's our sinful hearts. So when God gives the law, it shows us how sinful we really are. When we read a command, there's a sense in which we want to break it more. One of the things Jerry Hallbrook said to me, which I thought was really interesting, he was actually chatting with our staff a few months ago. He said, within the Southern Baptist Convention, you actually have higher rates of alcoholism and drunkenness than you do in other Protestant denominations. Do you know why? The Bible doesn't forbid drinking. It only forbids drunkenness. But in some Southern Baptist churches, they teach that the Bible forbids drinking. And so then those people, because this new command has been given that's not in the Scriptures, they hear that command and they think it's sinful, so they want to do it more. So there's actually more alcoholism and more drunkenness in churches that are saying don't drink it at all than there are with Presbyterians or Lutherans or Methodists or Catholics or whatever. Because there's something to the brokenness of our human hearts, the brokenness of sin, that craves what is forbidden. And that's what the purpose of the law is. The purpose of the law is to shut you up under sin, to shut me up under sin, so that we might cry out for a Savior. Not so we would try harder, but so we would stop trying and we would lay down on our faces and ask for mercy. That's why the law is given. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Verse 19. Verses 19 to 20. Well, verses 17 through 18 was about Jewish identity as they related to God with the Mosaic law. Verses 19 through 20 are about Jewish identity as they relate to Gentiles. Okay, so let's look through this. And if you are sure that you yourself, by the way, that's another self-reference. This is Paul talking to the Jews as they refer to themselves as Jews. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Here we're given four titles that Jews would have thought of themselves as, okay? In fact, all of these titles occur somewhere in Jewish literature. Some of these titles are actually taken from the Old Testament. This is how Jews saw themselves in relation to the other nations, okay? So if you were to get a business card from the first century from a Jew, he'd hand you his business card and it would say something like, Mordecai Hershowitz, a Jew, okay? And then under that, it wouldn't have that name, by the way. Those are more modern names. But under that, it would say, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. I think Carl's business cards say that. A teacher of children, an instructor of the foolish, because he's our family minister, and that's what he deals with. Okay? What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is saying, 
the Jews see themselves as those who are meant to be a blessing to the other nations. They're those who are meant to instruct people in God's ways. They're meant to help people through their sin. But instead, they're simply propping themselves up on the law, judging others who can't keep it while they fail themselves. Why they fail themselves. Let me do it this way. Let me give you an example. Anybody watch the Olympics recently, the Winter Olympics? Okay. What's so funny about the Olympics is that every two years when the Olympics is, or four years, depending on if you just follow one of them, everybody who knows nothing about those sports and follows those sports not at all the rest of the year instantly becomes an expert on the Olympics, right? So I didn't even know snowboarding was an Olympic sport, but if I'm watching that, I'm thinking, unless this guy gets a 1620, he's not going to medal. That's not the trick you need. And I know nothing about snowboarding, right? We all do that. Half of America didn't even know curling was a sport three weeks ago, but when we're watching it, we're like, nope, that's not how I would have done it. They should have used that weird little brush thing better. They should have bumped that rock out of the circle or whatever the heck curling is, right? We always do that. We assume, even though we don't do these sports, I've never done a triple backflip on skis. When somebody else does it, I'm like, man, they messed that up. They're awful, right? Which is why I think that for every Olympic sport, they should put one regular guy who's never done it. (laughs) So you can see how talented these athletes are. 100-meter dash, running next to Usain Bolt, overweight white guy chugging along in the back, all right? That'd be awesome, okay? Or to uh, swimming. Take some guy who's never, ever been in a pool, throw him in there with Michael Phelps. Let him just be laughing, and this guy's just trying to keep his head above water. I'd pay good money to watch that. Or take a guy who's never skated and have him do a figure skating dance in a tutu. Would Would that not be amazing to watch? He's just busting it all over the place. I think you guys, again, are judging me, but I think you would do the same thing. How much money would you pay to watch somebody pole vault who's never pole vaulted? A lot, all right? A lot. Well, what the Apostle Paul is saying with the Jews is that they're kind of like those spectators of the Olympics. They're saying, these people are failing, these people are failing, these people are failing, these people are failing, but we have the law. And then he says, but do you do the law? Can you do a triple backflip? Can you pole vault? How fast can you run? He's trying to point out their hypocrisy. He's trying to point out that they've taken these titles of the instructor of the foolish, these foolish Gentile nations. They're just like children. Yet the Apostle Paul's rebuking them for not keeping the same thing. Now, one more comment here before we move on to the next section. Look at how the Apostle Paul relates to the Bible in verse 20. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, look what he says about the Bible, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. One of the things that we hold here at Parkway is the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is absolutely perfect, that in the original manuscripts, and as long as you're interpreting it correctly, the Bible does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact, okay? We believe that the Bible is perfect, that it's infallible, that it's inerrant. Now, certain more liberal theological groups have critiqued us as Protestant evangelicals for that and said, well, you guys are really holding a higher view of the Bible than you should. And we're saying, nope, we're holding the view of the Bible the Bible holds of itself, We're holding the view of the Bible that all Christians have always held, and we're holding a view of the Bible that Jews held even before Christians. In Judaism, there were certain times where if they were copying the Scriptures and they messed up on one letter, they would burn that page and start over. There is a reverence to the Scriptures here, even with the Apostle Paul. He's not critiquing the law. He's critiquing people who fail to keep it. He's critiquing people who fail to keep it. Notice that he refers to the Bible here as the embodiment of knowledge and truth, truth with a capital T. You want to know what is right and wrong. You want to know who God is, who He's not. You want to know these kind of things. You go to the Scriptures. Verses 21 through 22. Now, if you were an English major or you were a teacher, this text has stressed you out up through verse 20 because it's been one long, run-on, dependent clause, okay? It has not finished its thought yet. He said, if you think of yourself this way, and if you think of yourself this way, now he's going to critique them. Here comes the rhetorical questions, verses 21 through 22. 
You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Here is simply what the Apostle Paul is saying. Ready? It's very simple. Do you practice what you preach? Do you practice what you preach? You see, it's easy to condemn people in sin while you are also in sin. In fact, your sin blinds you to your own sin and makes you focus on other people's sin. Okay? I have a buddy who uh, was a pastor at a little country church, and one day he got up on a Sunday, and there was just something going on that week in the news about homosexuality or something, so it was, that was kind of uh, the big political topic that week. And he just got up and he just said this. He said, homosexuality is sin, sin, sin. And he said, the people in the congregation started clapping. Amen, brother. You get them. You tell them. You tell them that that is sinful. And he said, while they were still clapping, he said, an unbiblical divorce is sin, sin, sin. Silence. No clapping, no amen, brother, just silence. And the point he was trying to make, both of those things are sinful, unbiblical divorce and homosexuality, they're both sinful. The point he was trying to make, though, is how easy it is to condemn others in sin while you yourself practice sin, while you yourself practice sin. That's what the Apostle Paul's doing. In chapter 1, he's condemning the Gentiles, and at that point, the Jews are clapping. Amen. Get them, Paul. Those dirty Gentiles with all their dirty sins, <laughs> they're the worst. And then the Apostle Paul says, <clears throat> how are you doing? They're like, ooh, right? That's what's going on in this text. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. You see, Paul doesn't condemn the Mosaic law. He condemns people who fail to keep it. He condemns people who fail to keep it. And Paul's not the only one. The rest of the Bible does this. Let me give you a few verses. Luke 3, 7 through 9. This is John the Baptist speaking. He says this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, i.e., we're Jews. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So they show up, and they say, we're good. We're of Abraham. We're Jews. And he says, what is wrong with you? God can raise up Jews from these rocks. You bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John eight thirty nine. they answered him. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works Abraham did. Again, these opponents of Jesus are saying, we're okay because we belong to Abraham. We're Jewish. And what Jesus has to say is, if you were really a spiritual Jew, not just physical, if you really knew God, you would be walking in obedience. Micah 3.11, even in the Old Testament you get this. These are critiques of leaders in Israel. It's heads, meaning those who lead and rule. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. And so here they're being critiqued for saying, We're Jewish. We're Israel. Everything with us is good. God made a covenant with Moses, right? And Paul's saying, Yeah, a conditional one that if you break, you get judged. If you break, you get judged. Let me give you a, a few weird illustrations. I like using weird illustrations for two reasons. One, because I'm weird. Two, they will stay with you. They will stay with you better. Okay, I want to give you some illustrations. We have a tendency as Protestants to think that the law is bad. We have a tendency to think that the Mosaic law is somehow bad or evil, all right? But the law is not bad. It's bad news for sinners. The law is not bad. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law is ordained by God. It's the, the bad part is us. The bad part is the sin. The bad part is we can't keep it. So let me give you a few illustrations. Here's the first one. Everybody know what a trampoline is? 
Everybody break your arm on a trampoline when you were a kid or something? Had people sign your cast? There you go. I saw a few hands up. Healed hands, non-broken arms. Uh, so imagine you have a trampoline, and it's a good trampoline. There's no holes in it. There's no rusty springs. It bounces you just as high as you need, okay? And so let's say you're on the trampoline, you and two other buddies. So y'all are bouncing. You're bouncing around on the trampoline, having a lot of fun, okay? Now imagine that you have two broken legs, and you get thrown on that trampoline, they're jumping, you're flopping around like a rag doll, kicking yourself in the head. Ah, you're screaming because it hurts. Is the trampoline doing anything wrong? No, the trampoline is just being a trampoline. The problem is a trampoline is a lot less fun when you have two broken legs and you're screaming. That's kind of like the law. The Old Testament law is like a trampoline. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. Its springs are not rusty. It bounces you high. But because of sin, we're born with two broken legs. And so that, what was originally good news, is no longer good news for us. It's no longer fun for us, okay? Let me give you another weird, weird illustration. Let's say you have a big cube or a, a big cake or whatever of jello. Everybody know what jello is? I don't know what it's made of, right? Glue, melted horses, I don't know. There's jello. So let's say you have this jello and you want to move this chunk or this cube of jello and you have a butter knife, okay? And you stick that butter knife underneath that cube of jello to try to lift it and to carry it somewhere. Is that going to be successful? No, okay? That jello is going to tear around that knife. That knife is kind of like the Old Testament Mosaic law. It's unbending. It's unyielding. It is strong. We, because of our sinful natures, we are like the jello. When the law is pressed upon us, we just tear around it. The problem is not with the knife. The knife is solid. The knife is made of metal. The jello is made of magic space gel, or whatever it is. But the problem is, is as when that knife presses on it, it just tears around it. That's like us. When the law presses on us, it just shows us how weak we are, and we tear around it. Thou shalt not fill in the blank, and we just tear around that knife. Grace is where if you were to take a plate and put it under the jello and just carry it, that's like grace. It carries the full weight of the jello. The jello does not contribute in that situation. It just carries and moves the jello. That's the idea. The Apostle Paul is not condemning the law. He's condemning us for failing to keep it. The law is good, but the law is not good news for broken, sinful, awful people like you and me. Okay? Nothing wrong with a knife, nothing wrong with a trampoline, but when you've got jello and you've got broken legs, a lot of bad things are happening. Okay? What the Apostle Paul is saying is that it's easy to find your identity in simply belonging into a group instead of personally trusting Christ and walking in obedience. I'll give you an example. The uh, first church where I pastored, it was a little church out in the country of about 75 people. And uh, we had a Bible study that we'd have in my home on Wednesday nights. And one night during a Bible study, uh, a little old lady that was a part of the group, she was in her 70s, she interrupted me and she said, Zach, you've just explained the gospel and you've just explained repentance and faith. And she said, I've never done that. She said, I've been in church over 70 years. She said, we went to church when I was a kid. I was baptized. I grew up in the church. This is the first time I've ever realized that I've never personally repented and trusted in Christ. I had kind of general conceptions about Christ. I was a pretty good person, but this, I've never actually given my sin to Jesus. I've never actually turned from it. I've never actually trusted him. And so we got to pray, and she got saved right there, and we got to baptize her the next week in service. But here's why that has always stuck out to me. I'm afraid that there might be at least a few people here at Parkway where that's the same case that you assume that you're a Christian just because you've been in church your whole life. If you were to ask what religion do you follow, you would check the box that says Christian, but that's different than actually being born again. That's different than actually loving Jesus. That's different than Him transforming and changing your life. Do you know Christ, or are you just 
banking on the fact that you've been in church a long time and church people are generally saved. Do you know Jesus? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Look at the last part of these verses. Look at the last part of these verses where the Apostle Paul's critiquing them. He says, you then, in 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That's his rhetorical big question to set up the next three. That's kind of a big heading for the subheadings. And he mentions three kinds of sins. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What does that mean? Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul is not saying that all the Jews commit all these sins. He's not saying every single one of you steal or every single one of you commit adultery or something like this. Now, you might be thinking Jesus says to lust is to commit adultery, but he's talking to Jews that don't know about the teachings of Jesus. He's still condemning them just with the Old Testament law. So here's my question for you, though. I think we know what stealing is. Everybody know what stealing is? Good. We won't spend time on it. I think we know what adultery is. But here's my question. What does the Apostle Paul mean here when he says robbing temples? Robbing temples. Well, the idea is in the ancient world, you had a bunch of these temples to pagan gods, and they had a lot of money in them. The idols were made of silver. The idols were made of gold. There were precious stones. People would bring their offerings, kind of like a tithe, uh, into the temple. And so some people would break into the temple and steal money. Now, a lot of people were afraid to do that because if you break into Apollos' temple and take his money, he might shoot you down with a thunderbolt or something like that, okay? I didn't mean to hit my mic right when I said thunderbolt, but it was an excellent example, okay? Might strike you down with a thunderbolt, okay? I know a thunderbolt's also not a word. I realize that it's a lightning bolt, okay? So people were afraid to rob temples. But sometimes people would still break in and they would rob and they would steal from that temple. And the Apostle Paul is saying that there were even Jews who did that and he condemns them for it. Why? For three things. Because it involves theft, it involves idolatry, and it involves the Jew becoming defiled. Let me give you a passage from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 25 through 26. The carved images of their gods, i.e. idols, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. So in the Old Testament, you could have nothing to do with idols, nothing to do with graven images. And so what's happening here are Jews are breaking in, knowing that they should not have anything to do with idols, that they're to burn idols, they're to get rid of them. They're stealing them, keeping them in their house, and maybe selling them for a price. While they're in their house, they're tempted to worship them. It's kind of like the guy who's a drug dealer, but himself doesn't do drugs. Well, I don't do the drugs. Those are for junkies. I just sell it. So here you have these Jews that will say, oh, I don't commit idolatry, but I sell idols, and I steal from temples, and I defile myself, and sometimes I actually do worship the idols because I'm tempted to, okay, because I'm tempted to. Verses 23 through 24, and then we'll be done. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. That's a loose quotation from Isaiah 52, 5. And there at verse 24 where it starts with the word for, you could translate that as no wonder. No wonder the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You Jews, by saying that you love God but break His law, give an opportunity for those that don't know God to mock Him and to make fun of Him. To mock Him and to make fun of Him. Okay? Let me give you an example. Let's imagine that you're a Gentile and you're passing through Israel. Okay? So Israel, being in that little strip in Palestine there, Israel was kind of a big land bridge between a lot of the major powers of the ancient Near East. Egypt had to go through Israel, Assyria had to go through Israel, Babylon had to go through Israel, and God put it that way intentionally so the other nations would see what makes Israel special. So let's say you're traveling through Israel, and you're a Gentile, and you're looking around at everything going on in Israel, okay? 
Now, you've heard that the Jews are an especially, especially holy people. You've heard that the Jews love their God. You've heard that the Jews live a meticulous life trying to obey the laws given by their God. And so you go in there and you're wanting to see what the big deal is with these people that you've heard about that seem super religious. And then uh, and all of a sudden you start to see a bunch of things that seem strange. They look different than you. They speak a different language than you. Their clothing is different. They keep one lazy day a week, what's called a Shabbat, a ceasing. They keep it on a Saturday, but for you, you don't do that. That seems weird to you. They do very strange things to their little boys at eight days old. That doesn't make sense to you. But all that just seems weird. But then all of a sudden, you're standing in the marketplace, and you see a Jewish person grab an apple off a cart and steal it. You think, wait a second, this guy's supposed to be holy. I've heard that these Jews are better than everybody else. He just stole an apple. You keep walking down the marketplace and a guy comes out of a house where he's just been with a prostitute and he's straightening up his shirt and trying to make sure he doesn't smell like perfume when he goes home to his wife and you think, this guy is supposed to be holier than me. He just cheated on his wife. You walk by a further place in the marketplace and there is a a Jewish person who's selling idols. They don't believe in idols. They're not going to worship the idols, but they're going to sell the idols to you so that you can worship them. And all of a sudden you think to yourself, their God's a nobody. Their God's false. I've heard that they're so great, so religious, all of that, but they're doing the same thing everybody else does. What makes Israel special? Nothing. And by doing that, you blaspheme God. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. By you claiming to be a God follower and breaking the law, you embarrass God. You allow the nations to mock Him. You allow the nations to mock Him. I think that there is a pretty strong admonition here for us when it comes to hypocrisy. If I'm talking to somebody who's a non-Christian and I ask them, do you want to come to church? What do you think of Christianity? The number one reason I get of why they don't like Christians or Christianity is because they can't tell any difference between the lives of Christians and non-Christians. It's the charge of hypocrisy. So when I say, why don't you come to church? And they say, oh no, all Christians are hypocrites. I have three responses to that. Number one, that's not true. There are some people that really love Christ and are devoted. Number two, it's why don't you join us then, right? If if all Christians are hypocrites, you're a hypocrite, you'll feel right at home. Go to church with the hypocrites, go to hell with the hypocrites, pick one, right? My third response is this. You're right. There is a sense in which, because we've been given the law and we say that the Bible's good and we disobey it, there is a sense in which there are times where we walk in hypocrisy, which is why we need a Savior. If you're looking for a religion where you can go pat yourself on the back, then go become a Muslim or something. But if you want a religion for broken people who sin and fail and need mercy and love and grace, you can do no better than historic, biblical, orthodox Christianity. So I've got three applications for us. Three applications for us. Here's the first application. Three questions. I didn't put it on the screen. I don't want you to write it down. I just want you to think about it, okay? Three applications for this text. How do we take a text that's rebuking Jewish non-believers 2,000 years ago in Rome and apply it to 2018 McKinney, Texas, okay? Here's the first one. Where's their hypocrisy in your life? Where's their hypocrisy in your life? Where do you condemn someone for a certain type of sin when you do the same thing or at least maybe something similar? Where's their hypocrisy in your life? The second one, where are you thinking that you're saved just because you belong to some group? Where are you assuming that you're just a Christian by osmosis? Like your parents were Christians and somehow you just caught that like it was some sort of communicable disease? Because what I found is that people that didn't grow up in church, when they get converted, it's clear and obvious. Sometimes people in church get inoculated to the gospel. They get a little gospel vaccine. They get just enough to not really get the real thing. Do you know Jesus, or are you just trusting in the fact that you consider yourself a Christian, or you've been in church your whole life, or you've been baptized, or something like that? Because if your trust is not in Christ, your trust is in your church attendance, or your trust is in your baptism, that water will bring you nothing but steam on Judgment Day. Do you know Jesus? Where are you trusting just belonging to a group instead of loving and trusting Christ? And then lastly, 
Lastly, I want to explain something. When we went through in theological equipping how to study the Bible, what we said is there are three main steps for interpreting and studying the Bible. There's observation, interpretation, and application. Observation, what's in the text? Interpretation, what does the text mean and how do I know that? And then application, what does it mean for my life? Now, in America, from the pulpit and from our personal Bible study, we have a tendency to skip the first two steps and go directly to application. Why? Because we, because we're sinful and we, because we're somewhat entitled, we have a tendency to just ask, what does it mean for me? Despite the fact that the Bible typically is not giving you something to go do, it's telling you something that God has done for you, okay? But what we have to do before we get to the application step is we have to do the observation and the interpretation. The observation in chapter 2 of Romans is simply this. The Apostle Paul is telling Jews who have the law that the law does not save them because they cannot keep it, okay? That's also the meaning of the text. That's the meaning of chapter 2, that you are not saved by your law-keeping, you can't keep it, and therefore you need a Messiah. You need Jesus, okay? What is the application for us today? Well, let me give you what Paul's originally saying, and then we'll talk about how it applies today. When Paul says you're not saved by works of the law in Romans and Galatians, what he's meaning originally is you're not saved by Old Testament rules, The works of the law for the Apostle Paul is not like church attendance and studying your Bible and helping little old ladies across the street. Works of the law, the Greek phrase ergonomu for Paul, works of the law refer to Jewish works. Circumcision, Sabbath keeping, food laws, dietary restrictions, how you looked, things that separated you from the Gentile nations, okay? That's what the Apostle Paul originally means. How do we apply that to us today? Because I doubt very many of us in here are really tempted to not eat bacon or something like that, really tempted to eat bacon and think it's bad or something. How do we take this text that's originally about Mosaic Jewish law and apply it to today? Here's how we do it. Ready? What type of commands are you trying to follow for your righteousness other than just trusting Jesus? Paul originally is talking about Jewish works, but by implication we could say, if you're not saved by God's perfect Old Testament Jewish law, you're certainly not saved by any made-up, be-a-good-person rules you follow today. But not only that, the Apostle Paul will explicitly say that you're not saved not only by Jewish works, but by any type of works, okay? So sometimes he's condemning Jewish works like circumcision, but he also condemns anything that you would try to do to save yourself instead of trusting Christ. Let me give you just three passages. I could give you more. I'll give you just three to make the point. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, meaning any good thing you do, so that no one may boast. Titus 3.5, he saved us. Notice, we didn't save ourselves. We didn't find Jesus. Jesus wasn't lost. He found us. We were lost. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Romans 4, 2-5, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, look at this next part. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. Where are you trusting something other than Jesus? Where are you 99% a Christian and 1% a first century Jew that Paul's rebuking, trying to say that everything's cool just because you have a Bible that you can't keep? Just because you have a Bible you can't keep. Let's pray as the guys helping serve communion come forward. Father, we thank you for today, and we come before you only because Christ has made a way and only by the power of the Spirit. And I thank you for this text. 
I confess it's a, a strange text. It's a difficult text to understand what's going on with a particular issue in Judaism, but I thank you that you've written this not just to the church at Rome, but you've written it to us. You've written it to us today, and so we thank you for it. We ask now that as we get ready to take communion, you would send the Spirit to soften our hearts, to convict us of sin, to remind us of your love, to remind us of the gospel, that our hope cannot be in law-keeping because we failed, but if there was one who could keep the law, namely Jesus, then everything's going to be okay for those that know him. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.